0: This is Gene Delcote and Sam Swartz with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: Democratic state lawmakers joined State Attorney General Josh Call today to announce a bill package that would address gun violence here in Wisconsin. The bills are a part of what they're calling Gun Safe Summer and look to prevent gun violence and accidental deaths. The first bill would mandate background checks for all gun sales in Wisconsin. The second would enable extreme risk protection orders to be administered by the courts. Those would temporarily remove firearms from someone a judge determines to be in immediate danger to either themselves or others. The final bill in the package would create a sales tax exemption for gun safes, barrel locks and trigger locks to encourage safe storage of firearms, especially in homes with children. Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard called on the legislature to take action on the issue, citing popular support and proven results for gun control legislation.
0: Wisconsin's U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher has decided that he will not be challenging Tammy Baldwin for her Senate seat in 2024. Gallagher announced his decision to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, citing his desire to stay in the House and continue to lead the the Select Committee on China. Gallagher's decision not to enter the race leaves the field open for a number of Republican challengers including U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany and former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark Jr. State Republicans will meet for their annual convention next week in La Crosse.
1: GOP lawmakers in the legislature introduced a bill directed at alcohol enforcement in Wisconsin last Friday. The measure would, among other things, create a new division in the state's Department of Revenue who would be dedicated to enforcing the state's alcohol laws. Currently, Wisconsin is one of only a few states that does not have a dedicated division for alcohol enforcement, according to the Associated Press. The measure has been greeted enthusiastically by the state's tavern league, who say that enforcement has been spotty and opaque for years. The move is also likely to crack down on beer of the month clubs or mail order specialty liquors as both technically violate Wisconsin's prohibition on shipping alcohol directly to the consumer. The proposed measure has a public hearing tomorrow with a projected passage by June 21st. The measure would then head to the governor for approval.
0: Former Dane County Sheriff Dave Mahoney has been tapped to serve as the director of the county's new Department of Justice Reform, County Executive Joe Parisi announced on Friday. The new department was created this year to address racial disparities in incarceration rates in law enforcement incidents. Mahoney, who was County Sheriff from 2006 to 2021, will serve as a temporary director of the department while the county begins the process to find a more permanent director. A resolution to approve Mahoney's appointment will go before the county board in the coming weeks. If approved, Mahoney would serve the department until early next year. Today was
1: the first weekday for the new bus routes implemented in Madison over the weekend. The total revamp is the largest service change to the Madison bus system in more than 20 years and includes changes to bus stops, routes, route names, and schedules. Ride guides in bright yellow vests are at stops and transfer points to answer questions riders might have about the new system. Riders who are trying to determine how to navigate the new system are encouraged to plan their route on the Metro website. Printouts of the new schedules are available on Metro buses or can be
0: requested in the mail. The American Red Cross and the Urban League of Greater Madison are asking for black blood donors in order to help fight sickle cell disease according to Madison 365. Sickle cell disease is a blood disorder that mostly affects people of African descent and which requires blood transfusions to help treat. The Urban League of Greater Madison is putting on a blood drive on Saturday to help get more black blood donors who often have compatible blood to help treat the disease. Interested donors are encouraged to make appointments to donate blood which can be scheduled online. And now on to today's Stop Stories. That's you, Sean. Sean. The state's
1: Budget Writing Committee voted last week to dramatically cut funding to the state's Office of School Safety, effectively ending the state's 24-hour tip line to alert authorities of threats to schools. That comes as the committee continues to work their way through the budget, and this week, they will take a look at two more school and children-related departments, the Department of Public Instruction and the Department of Child, Children and Families. To learn more about last week's vote and what's on the chopping block this week, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with State Senator Kelda Royce of Madison earlier today.
2: The Office of School Safety was created under the state's Justice Department in 2018 and in 2020 expanded to create a 24-hour tip line to collect and document anonymous threats against schools across the state. According to a recent report, that office received nearly 4,000 contacts between May of 2022 and May of 2023. Most of those were about bullying and suicidal threats. While that office currently has a staff of around 16 people, most paid through federal funding from the American Rescue Plan Act. Last week, Republicans and the Joint Finance Committee dramatically cut their funding, leaving the office with only 3.8 available positions, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. Democrats, including Attorney General Josh Call, are lambasting the cuts, saying that it will end its ability to collect reports of threats to school safety. To learn more about these cuts and about what's coming up next for the Joint Finance Committee, I'm talking now with Democratic Senator Kelda Royce of Madison. Here, Senator Royce, thank you so much for talking with me today.
3: It's great to be with you.
2: Now, Senator Royce, just to begin, tell me a little bit more about what the Office of School Safety is and how it's currently being run.
3: The Office of School Safety um, was started actually under the Walker era. And uh, the Department of Justice, headed by Attorney General Josh Call, runs it. And one of the most important things they do is they run a 24-hour anonymous tip line. This is a place where young people, you know, teenagers as well as teachers and administrators can call and anonymously report a tip, um, whether it's a threat, whether it's something they heard that concerned them, or um, in many cases, uh, reports of bullying or potential self-harm or suicidal ideation. This is incredibly important because, you know, young people can be isolated, and we want to make sure that we can take action before something terrible happens. And then those tips are analyzed by experts at the Department of Justice, and then action is taken to just check in with the person who may be at risk and connect them with services that they needed. This is just an incredibly important service for everyone in our state that helps keep kids and schools as safe as they can be.
2: Now, like I mentioned, Republicans in the Joint Finance Committee announced uh, pretty big cuts for that office. How will these cuts actually affect that office?
3: Well, unfortunately, uh, it means that the Department of Justice is going to have, I think, a very difficult time maintaining a tip line because there will be not the funding for analysts to actually follow up on those tips. And um, that needlessly puts our young people and our communities at risk. This is really important work. It takes highly skilled professionals, and you have to be there to answer the phone and to analyze the information that comes in. And um, at a time when we have a $7 billion surplus and Republicans are refusing to take other actions that could help keep our community safe, like gun safety measures, it's all the more important that we have these professionals available um, under the Department of Justice, under Attorney General Josh Call
2: now after this meeting last week, you fired back against some of these cuts. Tell me a little bit about that and why, in your eyes, this Office of School Safety is so important.
3: Well, I'm a parent, first and foremost, and I want my kids and every kid to be safe in every school in this state. And it is so important that young people, and times when we know there are all kinds of struggles that they have, whether challenges with peers and bullying, whether um, challenges with mental health and self-harm, or in the worst case scenario, someone who might be thinking of committing a violent act. We need to have intervention steps to prevent the worst from happening, to help young people. And in my mind, it's hard to imagine something that would be more important for government to fund. And the fact that Republicans just said, nope, shut the office down functionally by defunding it, is just absolutely an outrageous decision that's going to harm our students.
2: Now, Republicans did fund a few different programs sort of related to school safety last week, including around uh, $2.5 million for schools to make critical incident maps and another half million dollars for the ongoing task force on Internet crimes against children. Uh, What what are your thoughts on those proposals that were uh, brought up last week?
3: Well, overall, uh, what Republicans did was absolutely minimal. Governor Evers and Attorney General Call requested significantly more money for types of crime fighting that you mentioned and other things that are really important to keep communities safe. And time and time again, Republicans have said, no, we're not going to provide the funds that you've requested despite having a historic surplus. So the fact that they've given a dollar to a program that needs 10 is no cause for celebration and they certainly don't get a pat on the back for doing it.
2: So now that all took place last week. I want to pivot now to what's coming up this week, Uh, specifically starting with tomorrow. The Joint Finance Committee will be taking up uh, public school funding, correct? What what can we sort of expect there?
3: Well, you know, Wisconsin schools are still struggling from the devastating cuts of the Walker era and the money that is suctioned off to pay for private unaccountable voucher schools. Um, That comes right out of our dollars for public schools. So despite the deal that uh, Governor Evers reached with Republican leadership I think in in my view and um, those of us who are concerned about public education you know we still have a long way to go in terms of supporting public education it's great to see an increase in public schools but the reality is that our schools are being asked to do so much with very little and we need to adequately fund our our public schools and this is a something that can differentiate Wisconsin and help make us a great place for everyone to live and learn and thrive but that's only going to happen when our public schools get the funding they need and deserve.
2: And have Republicans released any specifics about what how much they are going to fund public schools or or how that compares to Governor Evers's proposals?
3: Yeah unfortunately the devil is in the details with these types of things and uh One of the challenges we have on the Joint Finance Committee is that Republicans are very good at uh, manipulating the media and grabbing a a good headline, but when it actually comes time to allocate the funds, for instance, um, that's where they fall short. And so I'm very eager to see the details of what they're going to propose. I'm going to keep an open mind and be hopeful, as I always am, that they will rise to the occasion and do the right thing here, but I'm going to want to verify exactly What is in their proposal? And I can tell you that it's going to fall far short of what Governor Evers had originally proposed um, for our K-12 public schools, which was about $2.3 billion. And our schools need it and they deserve it.
2: And now that'll be happening tomorrow. I believe that takes place, uh, that hearing will take place at around 1 o'clock tomorrow and then on Thursday the Joint Finance Committee will be taking up the Department of Children and Families Uh, now I know earlier last month there was the uh, child care providers held a day without child care where they sort of closed their doors calling Mm -hmm. for more more funding uh, for child care facilities and workers across the state Uh, what what can we sort of expect to see happen on Thursday
3: well uh, on Thursday I think it's uh, fairly open I I think There are some individual Republicans who would like to extend the child care counts program because they understand that it will be devastating to our economy throughout the state to lose thousands of child care slots, which is what will happen if we don't extend funding for child care counts. That said, I I think time and time again during this budget session, Republicans have underfunded critical priorities, despite the fact that it's going to hurt the economy and hurt Wisconsinites everywhere, including the very people they represent in their districts. So, it remains to be seen what they're going to do with childcare. But I can assure you that if they do not fully fund the childcare counts program, every single time there is a childcare facility that closes, and then dozens of workers have to leave the workforce in that community that's already struggling with a workforce shortage, Democrats will be there. And we will be uh, raising hell and making sure that people know who is to blame for the closures that these centers will experience.
2: And you mentioned the Child Care Counts program there. Can you just very briefly lay out what that program is and what Governor Evers proposed for that program?
3: Sure. Child Care Counts is a, a federally funded program that happened during COVID when child care centers, um, which had long been facing fiscal and sustainability, were forced to close during COVID to keep us safe. And so those funds have been used for things like to give early childhood educators, a dollar or two hour, an hour a raise. And these are among the lowest paid workers. Um, the average rate is between 11 and $13 an hour. You can make more at Culver's or a quick trip. So these are people doing incredibly important work for little pay or helping keep tuition rates more affordable for parents. And I say this as somebody with three young kids, um, two of whom are in daycare. And the average cost of daycare for an infant in many parts of Wisconsin is more than it would cost to send them to UW Madison for a year, which is insane. So it is an unaffordable cost for most families. So these funds help bridge that gap to increase pay for workers and to lower costs for families so that it is affordable and sustainable for childcare facilities to operate. You know, you can't automate childcare, you can't uh, improve the algorithm and get more productivity. You need human beings to care for our most precious assets, our children.
2: And then is there anything else that could be on the table with Thursday's hearing on the Department of Children and Families?
3: Well, there's certainly a lot of programs, uh, important work that the Department of Children and Families does. But one other thing I wanted to flag is that the University of Wisconsin's budget is going to be up this week. And UW is probably the most important economic engine for our state. And uh, they've been cut and cut and cut over a period of decades and It is long past time to invest in UW systems and make sure that every Wisconsin young person has a place at a UW school who is willing to do the work and wants to go. And Republicans have so far not made that possible. You know, they've said no to expanding the tuition promise. Uh, They have nixed uh, many of the building programs that were priorities for UW campuses around the state. And uh, so I'm concerned that they're going to turn their backs on the youngest Wisconsinites, as well as K-12 students and college students in this budget.
2: I've been talking with Senator Kelda Royce of Madison about the JFC's decision to cut funding for the Office of School Safety, as well as what to expect this week in the state budget writing committee. Senator Royce, thank you so much for talking with me today.
3: Happy to be with you, Nate.
1: About one in nine children in Wisconsin face hunger, according to Feeding America, a national network of food banks, and that hunger can affect educational outcomes for kids, leading to lower grades and developmental delays. That's why educators, lawmakers, parents, and food advocates gathered on the Capitol today for a Feed the Kids rally. They say lawmakers should take the opportunity to pay for free breakfast and lunch for every student. WORT reporters Maria Brunetta and Elizabeth Walsh have more.
4: Elena Terry is the executive chef at Wild Berries, a nonprofit that strives to bring ancestral foods to communities through education and community outreach. She says she sees hunger firsthand in classrooms.
3: Our role in school nutrition is to support student learning. I have answered the call of the school nurse for a student with a stomach ache related to hunger. I've had to try to teach in a room with a student that is acting out due to chronic hunger. I have watched a student open their lunchbox only to find it empty and feel shame out of hunger.
4: Terry spoke at today's Feed the Kids rally at the Capitol, organized by REAP Food Group and Dane County Food Collective, a group of food industry leaders here in Madison. The coalition was there to urge lawmakers to pay for the free breakfast and lunch for Wisconsin's youth. Wisconsin has had a taste of the policy. Federal funds paid for free lunch for students in 2020 as part of the governmental response to the pandemic. But those funds ran out last fall and Wisconsin's returned to a system where some kids qualify for free or reduced lunch. Some lawmakers say free lunch should be standard. Governor Evers proposed a slate of free lunch and breakfast policies in his budget proposal earlier this year. Those would have provided $120 million for supplemental nutrition aid. Additional funds would have reimbursed schools for the cost of providing breakfast and provided millions dollars worth of incentives for the use of locally sourced foods within school lunches. In May, Republican lawmakers cut those policies, along with hundreds of others from the governor's proposal. Evan Donnells is a co-founder of the Dane County Food Collective, and Chef at Cadre, a French-inspired restaurant in Madison.
2: As Midwesterners, we are famous for our hospitality. And that's what we do in this sector. We're your bartenders, your servers, your chefs. We provide for people when they're in our space. Well, like it or not, schools are our space. And we're not providing for people inside of that space. It's not a partisan issue. Like, we require children to be in schools while they're in our building being taught our curriculum. They should be getting fed by us.
4: Allison Faff harris is Farm to School Director for Rape Food Group. She's looking for lawmakers to back the issue.
3: Uh, The Joint Finance Committee did cut it earlier um, uh, from the from the budget, but we want to say, hey, no, we really want this to stay in or we want this in the state of Wisconsin. And we're, we're wanting to get the word out about it.
4: Today's rally was organized in part by Representative Francesca Hong, a Democrat from Madison who's made food and food access a key issue. In 2021, she introduced a bill that would have brought free and healthy school meals to schools. But that failed to pass. And so we're asking for uh, help from our legislators who have the power to make sure that we are investing in our kids uh, so that they stay here and continue to be invested in our future. Six states across the U.S., including California, Colorado, and Maine, provide free school meals to all students, according to the New York Food Policy Center. Senator Melissa Agard spoke at the Capitol today in hopes that Wisconsin will soon join that list
3: significantly better at school when they have healthy school meals and when they have full bellies. And unfortunately here in Wisconsin, despite the fact that we have a historic surplus, there are still kids that are hungry. through the budget process, and as Representative Vaughn pointed out, Republicans stripped that portion out of our state's budget. This isn't just about our state budget. This is about our moral frame and our
4: vision for what our state can be. Haley Tron is former member of REAP Food Group. She says free lunch would provide social benefits for youth, too. Um, It would also remove
3: a stigma for students who do rely on free and reduced lunch. And as a kid who had that myself at school, I think it's really important um, just to be providing basic needs at school. And food is certainly
4: one of them. Today's rally saw dozens at the state capitol. Lawmakers and community members, like Cadre Saute Cook, Zach Bishop, say they are pushing to ensure a healthy future for the next generation.
5: Basically, if we're going to coerce kids into getting an education, we should at least uh, give them a little carrot to go with the stick.
4: Reporting for WORT News, I'm Maria Brunetta. And I'm Elizabeth Walsh.
1: The time right now is just about 6.33, and you're listening to the local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Gene Delcourt. Thanks for joining us.
0: In what political experts are calling a surprise decision, the U.S. Supreme Court has struck down Alabama's congressional district map, citing its negative impact on black voters. Those who have long called for an end of gerrymandering boundaries feel hopeful as a result of the outcome, including in Wisconsin. Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
6: Civic engagement groups around the country, including in Wisconsin, are cheering Thursday's U.S. Supreme Court decision that upheld the key provision of the Voting Rights Act. The court struck down Alabama's congressional map, noting that gerrymandered boundaries diluted the voting power of black residents. The outcome is reverberating in states where redistricting has been a thorny issue. Wisconsin is among them, and Greg Lewis of the group Souls to the Polls Wisconsin says the ruling gives credibility to arguments that marginalized populations often lack a political voice because of the way voting districts are drawn. This scorched earth politics, this win at any cost, must stop. It has to be fair for everyone, not just a few. Those calling for fair maps in Wisconsin were already hopeful after April state Supreme Court race. The outcome saw liberals secure a majority among justices. Republicans, who have led redistricting efforts in Wisconsin, have long denied that they rely on a skewed approach, arguing that Democrats have made themselves unappealing to voters. Lewis hopes the recent court activity especially gets the attention of black voters who have felt alienated by the process. People say that, why should I vote? Because it doesn't make a difference. And it has become a problem that has been keeping people suppressed from voting. Past research from the University of Wisconsin has shown that the state's voter ID law has had a negative effect on turnout among voters of color. Meanwhile, political scientists predict this week's U.S. Supreme Court decision will change the trajectory of certain House races for the 2024 election. Mike Mowen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. This Saturday is the
0: anniversary of the day in 1971 when the New South Wales Builders Federation workers began a green ban to preserve the parkland known as Kelly's Bush near Sydney, Australia. This led to further green bans, preserving billions of dollars worth of land, most of which, including Kelly's Bush, are preserved to this day. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time.
6: For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men
7: and women, standing up and standing strong. This Saturday, June 17th, is the anniversary of the date in 1971 when construction workers in Australia began a green ban in Kelly's Bush near Sydney, refusing to build anything in one of the last open spaces in the area. The New South Wales Builders' Laborers' Federation, NSWBLF, was the union behind this environmental victory. Their refusal to build a luxury home development together with local women's campaigns to save the park worked. To this day, Kelly's bush remains an open space. Later, the Union engaged in more green bands, stopping billions of dollars of harmful development over the next four years. Much of this land remains preserved to this day. The stage for this struggle in Australia was set by the post-war immigration and technological changes in construction, such as increased use of concrete and cranes, leading to a skilled workforce losing power on the worksite. Skilled construction workers were organized in a different union than the unskilled workers in the NSWBLF. So-called unskilled workers, such as crane operators, began to assert their power on the worksite. As one upset architect put it at the time, the crane driver and the dogman can tie up the whole site. Dogmen stood atop crane loads and helped guide them to where they needed to go. Post war political changes in the unions began to enable new militant approaches, such as green bands. The Communist Party CP, won key union positions in several industrial unions and organized a rank and file group within the NSWBLF. This group began to address miserable conditions for construction workers, such as underpaid temp jobs, dangerous working conditions, and poor or non-existent bathrooms and break rooms. The corrupt union leader, Fred Thomas, ordered violence and intimidation against them, but the reformers persisted and won union leadership in 1958. They also formed an alliance with the more militant skilled trades construction workers. They increased meeting participation and launched militant actions. By the late 60s, workers were also more diverse, immigrant, indigenous, and young, often with activist experience, ready to try non-traditional approaches, and confident to demand more, since a strong labor market meant they could easily find a better job elsewhere. By 1968, the reformers in the NSWBLF spearheaded successful job actions that nearly equalized their pay with the skilled workers. Militancy was aided by the Union's increasingly democratic structure, where rank-and-file workers had a strong voice in running the Union and planning actions. Immigrant and Indigenous workers were included when the Union hired translators for members and multilingual organizers. A number of Indigenous activists worked day jobs as laborers and were strongly supported by the Union. Advancing racial justice the union helped fund the Indigenous Workers' Newspaper, and hired an Indigenous organizer, Kevin Cookie Cook Cookie, helped organize union resistance to the eviction of Indigenous squatters in Redfern, in Sydney's inner city. Redfern was and remains one of the country's centers for Indigenous life. Militancy was aided by the union structure, leadership positions were rotated regularly, and paid staff wages equaled those of an average laborer. Organizers were appointed at branch meetings. All job actions were decided by mass meetings, and strikes were controlled by member run committees. When Kelly's Bush was taken over by a developer, A V Jennings for medium and high density apartments, local women fought back, becoming known as the Battlers for Kelly's Bush. They went to the local council, the mayor, their state rep, and Premier, all to no avail. Finally, they sought out the New South Wales Builders Laborers Federation. The union leadership was sympathetic and asked the women to call a public meeting to show community support. Over 600 people turned out and formally asked for the union's support. Adopting a tactic tested in previous struggles, the union called for the Green Band to save Kelly's Bush. In retaliation, A.V. Jennings, threatened to build the development with non-union labor, using scabs. In response, building workers on an office project in North Sydney sent a message to their bosses. If you attempt to build on Kelly's Bush, even if there is the loss of one tree, this half-completed building will remain so forever as a monument to Kelly's Bush. A.V. Jennings backed down and the message alarmed area developers. This set the pattern. For a wave of green bans that lasted for four years and stopped billions of dollars of developments, harmful to local communities and the environment. And that is our story for today. For The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: In the first week of June, New York City had the dubious distinction of having, get it, the worst air quality in the world. Driven by prevailing air currents, smoke from hundreds of Quebec forest fires transformed the New York metropolitan area into an orange, haze-filled scene from a dystopian science fiction movie. Last Tuesday, the Air Quality Index for New York topped 200, a level the Environmental Protection Agency calls, quote, very unhealthy. Outdoor events, including Major League Baseball games at Yankee Stadium, were canceled and residents were advised to stay indoors. Vijay LeMay is a senior scientist and director of the Science and Society Program of the Natural Resources Defense Council. He spoke with 8 O'Clock Buzz Brian Standing earlier today to talk about the current reality of the climate crisis and how it will continue to affect communities across the world as well as here in Wisconsin.
8: So, is this something we're going to be seeing more of? We we hear climate change is going to make things a little wetter, but we I don't think people anticipated this level of
5: fire activity on the eastern part of the the continent. Absolutely, you know, climate change may not be lighting the fire, but it's absolutely fanning the flames. We're seeing warmer and drier conditions across uh, many parts of the world, including Canada. That's seen. It's worst wildfire season on record. We're talking about more than 11 million acres burned. That's enough to cover half the state of South Carolina, and it's 15 times the average we would expect to see by this point in the year. At, at
8: some point, if you know we we've had so many fires out in the west, uh, western
5: west of the Rockies, we're starting to see them on the east coast. At some point, won't everything have burned? <laughs> Well, you know we're seeing that there are still uh, unfortunately plenty of areas to burn we're seeing climate change create all sorts of intense health hazards beyond just kind of the folks directly affected by the flames, but smoke that travels far downwind hundreds, even thousands of miles Last week's episode was unfortunately, I think a sign of things to come if we fail to address the climate crisis and what can people do under those circumstances to try and protect their own
8: health I mean what we, obviously we're, we're trying to prevent climate change from getting worse, but we know there's a certain
5: Level that's going to happen, and some of this seems inevitable, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, I'm an environmental epidemiologist. I study health science. And the truth is there's no safe level of air pollution, which is why all the recommendations, even here in Madison, you know, last weekend we saw elevated levels of fine particulate matter, ozone, air pollution, you know, all sorts of toxic compounds are transported by wildfire smoke. So the key message is really reduce your exposure as much as possible. If you have to be outside, wear an N95 mask like the ones we've been wearing for COVID and do everything you can to reduce physical activity and strain, especially if you have a chronic health condition Uh, heart or lung disease, for example.
8: So what can we anticipate in terms of these kinds of forest fire events in the future? Are these going to be regular, sort of everyday occurrences, or are we going to see episodes
5: where they flare up at certain points of the year? What we're seeing is that wildfire season is essentially getting longer and stronger. So we're seeing these fires start earlier, become rapid, you know, kind of they they spread very rapidly and they become even harder to put out because we have such dry, hot conditions on the ground. So we're turning entire forests into tinderboxes in a way that we'd never have before. You know, we've burned more coal, oil, and gas since 1990 1990 than in all of human history before that. This is the highest level of CO2 pollution in the atmosphere in the last three and a half million years. So, you know, climate science tells us that we are going to be facing more intense fire risks in the years to come, which is why our uh, action on this problem is so urgent. And what are some of the health risks and impacts from the particulate matter that we've been seeing? Right. So it's called fine particulate matter. PM 2.5 is kind of the technical term. Two and a half microns are smaller. We're talking about microscopic part particles invisible to the human eye they penetrate deep into our lungs into the respiratory tract and from there into the bloodstream Fine particulate matter is associated with a whole host of grim health outcomes, including asthma exacerbations, heart attacks, stroke risk, lung cancer, you name it. So, you know, as much as the health science has made it clear that short term exposure to PM is dangerous, we also have to now be worried about chronic exposure to wildfire smoke, because it seems that the, you know, kind of combined effects year after year of wildfire smoke events may be doing, you know, tremendous damage to public health.
8: We've heard for a long time from ecologists that with the uh, policies that have been implemented for forest tree management, where uh, we've been suppression of all fires uh, has led to uh, an unhealthy and dangerous situation in many of the forests. Is that changing? Are these fires helping to reset some of the... uh, what we've seen in terms of forest management to date?
5: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not a wildfire ecologist, but I will say that the situation in Canada right now is really, you know, straining the government's resources. We have more than 400 active fires burning, more than half of which are out of control. Um, what we've seen is an off-the-chart situation in terms of fire risk, but also, like you said, in terms of air pollution. So as much as we can try to manage forests to especially reduce risks in populated areas, the general trend in terms of what climate science tells us is that we're going to see more fires break out, even in places where, where we haven't seen them you know, be a problem before. So this is really, I think, a wake-up call for all of us. And for cities on the East
8: Coast that haven't had to deal with this kind of thing in the past, what lessons can they learn from their counterparts in places like Los Angeles or even places like Seattle?
5: Yeah, you know, there's a lot to be done on this climate adaptation front, which is basically you know, making people safe in the world that we live in, right? Getting people prepared for the climate harms that we know are on the way. So certainly, I think we've seen a big learning experience out east in this past week in terms of the need to not just think about traditional threats in New York City, like extreme heat or coastal storms, but also the threats of air pollution. So I think more and more, we, we've seen you know emergency response folks, uh, distribution of masks, really a, a lot more coordinated effort uh, is needed in order to prepare people for multiple, even converging climate threats. The health science is clear when people are exposed to elevated temperatures and air pollution at the same time, they're at even more risk for dangerous health effects. This is, I think, all the more reason to invest even more in preparedness and adaptation
8: Many of us uh, who live in the Midwest have, may have felt a little bit immune from some of these climate impacts we you know aren't don't really have to worry about hurricanes and uh, and landslides forest fires is
5: kind of new to us as well are there things that we should be doing in this part of the country definitely you know i think we've seen in wisconsin elevated risk because of the the drought this year in terms of risk for fires in our area but the truth is that madison itself you know i was here a few years ago when we had that you know crazy flooding uh in 2018 we are not immune no one is immune really from the health harms of climate change we don't know where they're going to strike exactly or when they're going to happen but the general science the general trends are very clear so that's why we have we got to act you know as a as a health scientist, this is the number one threat to public health that we face as a country, as a world. and so to me this is really you know all the more reason to take action now to cut our reliance on fossil fuels and move towards renewable sources of energy And what specific actions
8: are is the NRDC asking for people to to support?
5: You know, I think the the truth is that we need to think about climate change not as you know just an engineering problem. It's not just about solar panels and polar bears. It's about our human health, right? It's about the health of our kids, the health of older folks. Anyone that we care about is going to be affected by this problem. So the truth is, we all have to demand strong action from our government, even stronger than we've seen over the past year, because the truth is that CO2 doesn't care about the political situation on the ground. We have seen carbon pollution explode in terms of of emissions from coal, oil, and gas, and so what we need to do is really reduce those emissions but also at the same time invest in preparedness because we know that there's a whole lot of danger already baked into the momentum of our climate system.
8: It seems like a lot of the recommended responses to reducing carbon in the atmosphere uh, are, as you say, an engineering or technological solution. But it seems like in order to make the kinds of changes we really need, we need some societal and lifestyle changes. That's a hard lesson, I think, for most people to take and one that I think most people resist. What would those changes actually look like if we were going to meet the, car- the carbon goals, for example, that would uh, prevent this from getting worse?
5: So the truth is that a lot of the actions that we need to take to deal with climate change can benefit our health in the near term. Uh, Jonathan Pats and Tracy Holloway, professors here at UW Madison, have done pioneering work, including studies showing that you know reduction in car trips and you know in substitution of bike trips in here in Madison, one of the bo- most bikeable cities you know in the entire country, would help to make a big dent in the climate problem. It would also help us deal with the you know gigantic chronic disease threats that we face in this country in terms of the. Obesity epidemic, heart disease, chronic conditions that are right now costing Americans millions of dollars and harming their health day to day. So the truth is that actions to deal with the climate problem can also benefit all of us in the near term. And they're not just about, you know, saving future generations or thinking 100 years into the future. This is very much uh, a situation where action now delivers real benefits that are tangible. So get out and bike and turn off your air conditioning unless the air quality
8: is so bad that you can't do those things, right?
5: Well, yeah, you know, we've We've done some work here at UW with with Professor Patz and Professor Holloway showing that if we continue to rely on fossil fuels to power AC, we're going to make the climate problem even worse. It kind of feeds on itself. So this is why we need kind of a, a systematic way to address the problem because these threats are so interconnected. This all seems
8: kind of hopeless at the moment. I mean, is there any glimmer of, of hope or are you seeing any
5: positive signs out of these kinds of disasters? You know, while there have been really, you know, these unprecedented, dangerous events all around us, and they've been intensifying, I am hopeful. I think we've seen in the last, you know, nine, 12 months, unprecedented action, thankfully, from the highest levels of government in our country. And I think momentum is building certainly globally to recognize that we only have a limited window of time to really deal with this threat before we reach a point of no return. So I think, you know, action is something that happens at the local, regional, state, and national level, but we're also seeing the international community really come together to address this problem.
8: And one of the things that I think causes you know a feeling of hopelessness among folks is the scale of the problem. And even if you make your own personal lifestyle choices, uh, the impact that you're going to have on a global scale is pretty minimal. And it requires those large institutions that you're talking about, corporations and governments, military operations, things like that, to really make a dent in it. And how do we muster that will to try and drive those large
5: lumbering institutions in the right direction. You know, I think there's a number of strategies. What we're doing right now, and even just talking about climate change and connecting what we saw last week, which was very dramatic, to the overall crisis that we know is underway is important. People are really not talking about the climate problem as much as they should be, given all the evidence of effects that we see all around us. I also think it's just really important to think about all the people that you care for. This is about human health. This is about well-being. This is about securing a livable future for us right now. And and for, you know, you think about kids in schools who are going to be at risk of extreme heat or air pollution when they go outside, you want people to be able to enjoy and thrive in the future and not be dealing with escalating climate threats. So anyone you care about, and you yourself will be affected by this problem one way or another. And so I think, you know, as we talk about this problem right now, we are building the case for even more sustained action. All right. We've been speaking with VJ LeMay of the Natural Resources
8: Defense Council. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you, Brian.
1: And that was 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing. It's Monday, and that means feature contributor Harry Richardson brings us two new movie reviews. First is an important documentary, Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried, about the Chicago police killing of Republic Steel striking workers in 1937 and the censorship of the newsreel footage of the tragedy by Paramount Pictures. Then, on the big screen, a superhero movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania.
8: Memorial Day, 1937, and there was a picnic. Strikers and their wives and kids are on the grounds of Republic Steel in South Chicago.
7: And that was a from the trailer for Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried, directed by Greg Mitchell. This moving documentary reveals a little-told story about the massacre of workers by Chicago police during the 1937 Little Steel Strike and the self-censorship of the story by Paramount Pictures. The film is based on the oral history book that interviews survivors of the attack by Mitchell. In a compact 26 minutes, Mitchell takes us back to a time when supporting the rights of workers could get you killed. It was Memorial Day, and the workers were on strike for union recognition. The major steel companies had recognized the union, the United Steel Workers Union, CIO, and all but one of the so-called Little Steel companies had reluctantly followed suit. Republic Steel, run by the notoriously anti-union Tom Girdler. There was a picnic, then families with dads carrying their kids on their shoulders marched to Republic Steel, for a lawful picket numbering several hundred they slowed as they came close to a massive police presence they were ordered to disperse there was a heated argument a few rocks were thrown at the police suddenly a few police drew their pistols and opened fire point blank into the crowd then as the marchers fled the police chased the survivors clubbing them in the end forty people were shot including a woman and a young boy, most of them in the back. Ten demonstrators died by mid-June, and another 50 were injured. Most of the surviving wounded were arrested and shoved into paddy wagons without medical attention. Only a handful of police required treatment for minor injuries. Despite the one-sided nature of the tragedy, local and national papers blamed the protesters. The workers were called a mob who had set off a riot, leaving the police with little choice. Some articles claimed that the workers fired first. The strongest evidence of what really happened was captured by a Paramount news cameraman, but Paramount refused to release the finished newsreel. A Chicago citizens group heard about the footage and urged Wisconsin Senator Robert LaFollette Jr. to look into it. LaFollette was co-chair of a Senate subcommittee investigating civil rights violations against workers. He promptly subpoenaed the raw footage. Staffers either leaked or showed it to a St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter, Paul Anderson. A shocked Anderson interviewed a few of the people filmed, and his paper ran two articles that were picked up by the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other media. Then LaFollette held hearings on the matter, called witnesses, and subpoenaed the footage. Some of the remarkable footage is shown in the documentary and was eventually partially released by Paramount after the hearings had turned public opinion to the striker's side. A remarkable documentary. I highly recommend it. It just started showing on Wisconsin PBS. Next up, on the lighter side, a new summertime superhero movie. Who are you?
0: I'm the man who can give you the one thing you want. What's that? Time. Time.
7: That was a clip from the trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, directed by Peyton Reed. This is the third of the Ant-Man series. It would help to at least see number two for this one to make any sense. The old gang is back, and there's still some fun stuff here. But the tone is definitely more downbeat than the other two, especially if you stay to the end and watch the star of the credits for a hint of the next film, Paul Rudd. Ant-Man, Scott, is happy in San Francisco, walking contentedly down the street. He's hailed as a hero at his local coffee shop, but the proprietor yells, Thanks, Spider-Man, on the way out. He has a book reading on his story and enjoys time with the Wasp, Hope, and underutilized Evangeline Lily. Of course, this comes crashing down all too soon. His daughter, Cassie, Catherine Newton, now 18, and a budding activist, has been working with Hank Pym, Michael Douglas, to map the quantum universe see last movie they also haven't mentioned this to hank's spouse janet michelle pfeiffer who had been trapped in the quantum for 30 years see last movie again when cassie decides to show her dad what she's been up to all five of our characters are in the lab when the machine is switched on despite janet's desperate warning and they are all sucked into the quantum realm the realm has a class a villain trying to escape a convincingly scary Kang, Jonathan Majors, they clash and our story really takes off. There's also a fun cameo from Bill Murray. All in all, a fun, if darker, Ant-Man edition. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters were Maria Brunetta, Elizabeth Walsh, Welcome aboard, Elizabeth and Maria. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing with the 8 O'Clock Buzz, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Nate Hout produced this newscast. Welcome back, Nate. And Charlie Pittman engineered the show and is the news director at WRT. And for Victor Calzoni, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I hope you I hope your back feels better and you're still my favorite Scotsman. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. And
1: I'm your host, Sam Sports. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free farm show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.